Hello, Edie Ekmo. We are doing episode 16, When to Stop the Train. I am here in Montreal at a swanky cafe. Joe and I just finished the Bring Me Back to Life conference, and it was amazing. So many good speakers. Weingart, we had Dawson and Malin for ultrasound. We had Vicky Noble. John Francois and Maxime, great talks. Today we are going to talk about when do we stop the train. We've been asked over and over and over again at conferences that we are going to about the indications for ECMO. When do we start ECMO? What are we using as our inclusion criteria? And today we are going to take that question and we're going to morph it a little bit. We are going to change it up and say, how do we know in any patient when do we start CPR? And importantly, when we get these out of hospital cardiac arrest, when do we stop resuscitation? And I have with me, my colleague, Joe Belezzo. How you doing, Joe? Great, Zach. How are you? Uh, fantastic. And we have Cyrus Olson, a PhD from Oxford, a professor at the University of Scranton, who serves on an IRB board for both human and animal subjects, and an expert in the field of medical ethics. Cy, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Zach and Joe. Absolutely. Now, Cy, I'm going to throw this out to you just to start. How do we stop this train? I want to throw at you guys three senses of dignity, which comes from a MD, PhD by the name of Daniel Sulmazy. Okay, so he has this article called The Three Senses of Dignity. And I'll just lay those out for us and we can use those for conversation. So they are firstly what we would call intrinsic dignity or the, the dignity associated with a self. So that you are a human being who deserves dignity just by virtue of the kind of thing you are. The second is attributed dignity which Somezi says is about the market value. So the analogy here is with, say, ordering lobster on a, on a menu. It's market price, it fluctuates, it, it, it varies depending upon what something can fetch in terms of price on the market. So that's the market value of the second sense. The third sense is about what he calls inflorescent dignity or flourishing. So how, how much health does somebody have? How, much, how, how are their capacities with respect to their, their way of life and their, their time in life? So that's about flourishing. Those three senses we'll try to use in discussion here, I think. So, Sai, what you're saying is there are, you, you've just described the three senses of dignity, and that is, number one, we inherently, as human beings, have a value. Correct. Number two, despite how harsh it seems, individually we all have a particular market value that cannot be ignored. Correct. And then number three, over the course of our lives, there is a degree of flourishing that's important. And I sort of think of that as quality of life or whether you can function at a level that keeps you satisfied and as a functional uh, human being. Yeah, and it's, it's concerned with how how healthy we seem to ourselves and to those with, with whom we're, we're living our lives. And it's important to, to recognize that these three are, allow us to have a depth perception with respect to the person, right, that we're treating, and especially that you're treating as, as physicians, in, in the sense that you, you at times have to assess the person on largely those two other factors, the attributed or the, the market value and the, the flourishing. 
and we're just concerned, let's say, people on the street or ethicists like myself, that you don't lose sight of these other layers. And, and I think it's just important to enrich the discussion about how we're caring for the person. Now, I think that that's really good. Let's just jump back, though, and put us in the position that ER doctors are actually in in real life because we don't often have the time to run this checklist and talk to the family members and find out all of this information. Often what we're left with is a patient who shows up. We have known them for 15 seconds with their chest compressions going on. Medics deliver them to your bedside. You have a very brief history from the medics. And let's just take the example of a, uh, randomly speaking, a 75-year-old male you know nothing about. He has no obvious signs of prolonged or, or, or ongoing neurological or physical problems. To your knowledge, a healthy 75-year-old guy getting chest compressions, and for the most part, that's all you know. Sai, it's impossible for me to determine whether or not they or their family members have a feeling of self. I can't tell you whether or not they have any market value and certainly can't tell you what their quality of life is or what their flourishing ratios are. So I guess the question is, from the ethical side of things, would you say at this point it's reasonable to start the resuscitation while you're trying to answer those questions. Absolutely, and you need, you need the time to be able to make some of those judgments, and you're, you're often not given any of that time, and that's what's remarkable about the kind of work you do in the, in the ED, you know, and, and it's, I think it's important for people to, to recognize that physicians are aware that they don't want to be reduced to a simple cost-benefit analysis, so that if I am 75 and you say I'm now of little use to society, that that would just immediately allow me to be canceled out of care, and that's the, that's the primary concern is, don't reduce me, don't dehumanize me, and yet let's remain open to this discussion about those layers. Yeah, so we have now sat down, Zach, Sai, and I sat down for the last oh, hour and a half or so and tried to figure out how we could incorporate this into a resuscitation because you just nailed it, Sai. When the patient arrives at the door, we have zero information, and then information starts to trickle in, and we, we don't know anything about the patient at this point. So the best that we can do at that point is start maximal resuscitation at that point, and then as information changes and comes in, we use that information. So in doing that, you mentioned the three senses of dignity. And of those, the one that we can probably estimate as best possible would be the last one, the flourishing component. I think that you can look at most people and say, yeah, they've got inherent self-worth. They meet number one. Number two, we ain't going to know that because we don't know anything about their lives. So all we can do is look at the third component, the flourishing component, and say, this seems to be a person who before arrest, their pre-arrest state was fairly functional, and they don't appear, or at least from the information we've gotten from medics, there's no indication that they had a pre-arrest poor functionality, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to assume, we're going to put them in a bracket or a category of patients who are perceived to have a high level of potential flourishing. Now, on the website, we are going to leave a graph, and I'm gonna try and describe this graph to you. This is an X and Y axis graph. The X axis is going to be time, and that's time in years over the course of a patient's life. And the Y axis is going to be a level of flourishing or perhaps functionality. 
And we're going to acknowledge that everybody, once you reach a certain age, whatever age that is, but everybody's level of flourishing begins to slowly decline. So purely by example, if you're going from being aged 40 to age 110, there's going to be a relatively linear line, if you're a healthy person, that's going to, over the course of time, diminish. And so you're going to see a downward slope of that line when you're comparing the X to the Y axis. Now, we all also have to acknowledge that there is a line that's drawn horizontally across the Y axis somewhere near the bottom. And we're going to define that as the functional threshold below which the patient cannot have a level of functionality or flourishment that would be redeemable by performing advanced resuscitation. Does that sound about right? Joe, if I understand you correctly, the, the functional threshold indicates for us what kind of care we can, we can offer. And I think, it's, I think it's very important for us to understand that there is a, there's an aggressive, curative set of actions that we take when it's above that threshold, and there's, but there's also an aggressive set of actions we take for palliative care below that threshold, which I think you'll need to, to clarify for us, that, that puts people like me, ethicists, at ease because we recognize it's not a removal of care. It's, in fact, a different type of care that is, that is also addressing the, the dying process, which we must acknowledge is in... It, the train is going, right? And this is, this is where it's heading, and we need some form of care such as aggressive palliative care. So I'll look forward to hearing about how that works. Yeah, so I just described a fairly complicated, somewhat complicated XYZ graph that when you break it down and we do identify that functional threshold, the line below which we no longer consider aggressive resuscitation, you just said it, Sai. Above that line is a curative path, below that line is a palliative path, and it'd be, it's ideal to identify that, that one particular line right up front as soon as, soon as possible after the patient hits the door. Zach. Okay, this is good stuff. Don't get me wrong, this is good stuff, but this is fluff, right? Us, we are in the emergency room. We are making decisions. This is not like just a theoretical thing. This is something that you guys make every single day. I wanted to go back and get some hard and fast stuff here. From the market value standpoint, I think, personal opinion, we do have a duty economically to society about what is appropriate and what is not. You make these decisions every day whether you like it or not. The MRI to diagnose a pinky fracture, you make that decision. Do you order it or do you not? The same thing occurs with resuscitation. We have an obligation to decide is this not only functionally responsible but is this economically functional and that is uh, from my standpoint, an important part. And it is attending to the common good, right? You're looking at, okay, we are going to have serious economic impact here based upon our decisions, and we know this, and so we must be mindful of how we make those decisions. And, it, and lest society assume that somehow we're, we're being simply draconian in our actions, we need to, people need to recognize that these decisions are made and they have real impact on society, and we can't take that away from the physician, and we need, we need to be able to understand how that works. 
Okay, market value is important. Let's get back to this functional threshold. We all know that there is a point below which we decide that this is palliative care, this is not curative care, but we need some hard, we need some facts, we need some data, we need some things that we work by. And one of the things that I use, and I think we all use sort of intrinsically, but it's good to sort of think about what are the numbers here, are the Utstein variables for cardiac resuscitation. And those, in my mind, equate to downtime of greater than 30 minutes, no CPR for 10 minutes, no bystander CPR, persistent asystole, an unwitnessed arrest, and then this fifth category, this idea of the pre-arrest condition. So these are not, they are potentially, it's what I use to stop the train. So Zach, I don't disagree with you at all about trying to assess or the importance of a potential market value as one of the three huge pieces of information here. What I do say is that that information often isn't available to us when that patient hits the door. So the best thing that you can do is identify your functional threshold. And once you've identified that, you're either up or curative or down palliative. As long as you're up, you're in what we'll call the zone of maximal resuscitation, which gives you, the ER doctor, full license to full court press the patient until, or and continue to do that until either they get a return of spontaneous circulation, you decide to pronounce, or in our case, and hopefully a lot of your cases, the patient may or may not end up on ECMO. The other thing I like to say is, as information flows in, you may identify a patient on this graph, on this matrix, you may identify a patient above the functional threshold, within the curative zone, and as information comes in, you may identify that patient at a later point in the resuscitation as being below that level or in the palliative zone, at which time you are gonna transition your aggressive efforts from aggressive curative to aggressive palliative care, which for the most part means comfort care. I will expand that and be a little more dogmatic and maybe harsh with it. I will say that in a patient that has severe pre-arrest morbidity, they're severely demented, they have uh, end-stage cancer, these patients deserve a brief resuscitation. They do not deserve the prolonged resuscitation that we're giving to the 20-year-old that just had uh, some, some electrolyte disturbance arrest or something like that. So let's get into this, this question and sort of get Sai's opinion. Sai, but, but Zach, from- aren't you saying that, that somehow neurological status is coming into your decision-making process? And your own AHA says, and I'll quote, neither citizens nor professionals should make a judgment about the present or future quality of life of a cardiac arrest victim on the basis of current or anticipated neurological status, end quote. And so are you, are you saying that you're anticipating in some cases the neurological status or going against the AHA or how do you play out this kind of pronouncement from them? I don't think that this goes against what I'm saying. I think that that statement actually leads into something that's incredibly important for us. And this is probably the, one of the biggest take-homes from this talk, and that is that we cannot predict the neurologic outcome of patients that are in cardiac arrest. That doesn't mean that we can't predict, they're, they're never gonna get better than their pre-arrest condition, okay? We know that. that That train is set, it is going downhill for the rest of their life. But 
if they, intra-arrest and post-arrest, you cannot predict a patient that was had good pre-arrest condition what their post-arrest condition is. So I completely agree with that statement, but in the patient that has poor pre-arrest condition, I believe it is appropriate for us to do resuscitation efforts that are limited. So let's go back to our example. Let's go back to the beginning of this real quick and say, I've got a 75-year-old male who comes in. I've identified that male to be in the curative zone. He is on the uh, functional line that is above the uh, functional threshold that we've just defined. This is a patient who has normal pre-arrest neurologic function. That patient has met all of the Utstein criterion that Zach defined. And now in a typical CPR case, you've now run your case for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 45 minutes and you've done all rounds of CPR, you've done all the drugs and at this point the patient is still in a non-perfusible rhythm. Right. This patient now may meet criterion for us to put that patient on ECMO. It's the doctor's responsibility to decide who gets and who does not get to go on ECMO. Sigh, from an ethical point of view, can you describe where the doctor stands in this so-called tyranny of choice? I was greatly helped by the article you offered from Lamas and Rosenbaum, Freedom from the Tyranny of Choice, Teaching the End-of-Life Conversation, which argues that, in fact, the patient's family or members who have any role in the decision-making process need to be freed from this tyranny of choice. And there's a quotation from Franz Ingelfinger in, the, in that article that says this, a physician who merely spreads an array of vendables in front of the patient and then says, go ahead and choose, it's your life, does not warrant the somewhat tarnished but still distinguished title of doctor, end quote. That, that idea that in some way you are offering a vending machine or vendables to these, these people who cannot make the decisions that you can make because we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the capacities, and we're just stunned, to use that term that you guys use with, with respect to ECMO, to be stunned in the face of these decisions and paralyzed, means that we need to have recourse to the trust of the doctor. And that's what Hayes' article says, that, that really there's, this, there's the, a need for us to have recourse to trusting your judgment and that the open and free conversation from you about this is the best course of action with respect to all the data that we have, that that is an, a, a key component to the ethics of of how to care for this person, because then you can put me at ease and say, look, we're gonna be aggressive about palliative care. It's not about not caring for this person now. It's more of a question of how can we help them die with dignity. So what you're saying, Sai, is that it's reasonable for me as the treating physician, the resuscitationist in a patient who is dying in front of me, to make a decision that should be best for that patient of course, there are often several other options, but make the decision that we think is going to be the best decision and approach the family with whatever that decision is, whether that's a decision to go 100% curable or 100% palliative. Yes, because there are, there are people who have witnessed, for example, uh, chest compressions of family members and then backed off and said, well, that's, that's too rough, too aggressive, and in fact, that person never wanted that and we don't want that for them. So the, even the experience of some people getting in and seeing what chest compressions actually are convinces lay people that, that actually that, even that aggression is, is too much. Right? And there's, it's, often they lack that information, that knowledge. And so when, when we're introduced into that arena, I think it puts us at ease and, and enhances the trust with respect to the doctor's capacity to make these decisions. So you're saying that as the doctor taking care of this patient, I am on ethical 
solid ground making the decision to say, no, this patient should be palliative, or I'm also on ethical solid ground, even if I end up being wrong from the beginning, I'm on ethical solid ground with the information I have up front to say, this is a 100% curative patient, this patient lands in the zone of maximal resuscitation on my matrix, I'm on ethical solid ground there. What we fail to recognize, that we armchair theorists, is that, is that you're actually doing this, right? And you are making these decisions and that there, is, there are sound grounds upon which these decisions are being made. And, and so yes, you're on ethical, solid ethical grounds, and this, but it's also with respect to ECMO and your, your work in this, is that the issue of buying time is key and essential to this. The way that I look at this is that we have already run this paradigm in our minds, and we've gotten down to the point where we are still on the maximal resuscitation pathway. We're in the 100% curative zone. We are going a full bore on this patient, and we're going to consider putting this patient on ECMO. Right, so when you said ECMO makes that more available, is that, is that correct? Well, no, it doesn't no. make it more available. You don't become more, um, you don't have more reasons to live based on putting somebody on ECMO, and ECMO is not a curable thing. What it does is it buys you some time. But let me just jump back real quick because once you've reached this point, you've reached the point where you are going to put a patient on ECMO, you've determined that they are a candidate. The next number one thing, and we've identified this over and over again, is that they have to have a fixable problem. Before ECMO, the amount of time you had to get that problem fixed was a fixed amount of time. So we don't know what exactly that time is, and it probably is age dependent. It probably has a lot to do with all of the factors involved in the matrix we've described today. But let's just say that time is 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 45 minutes of CPR, mechanical or, or human CPR, and we call that X. Time equals X. ECMO does nothing more than give you multiples of that X. And in most of these cases, it's usually two, maybe three X to buy you enough time to fix the underlying problem. I think we've seen that this notion of three senses of dignity can be applied to the context of the ED, for example, and decisions with respect to ECMO. And what I have learned with regards to ECMO is that, in fact, there's a, now a space provided, a hopeful space, for allowing families and participants in the process to make better decisions. Okay, to wrap things up, the goal of this entire podcast episode was to try to identify when to stop the train. And the train is already rolling when that patient hits your door. Number one, you, the doctor, the resuscitationist, are the only one in the room who has the experience, the knowledge, and the skill set to make these decisions, and you have to make these decisions. Number two, when you're placing the patient on this timeline, you need to identify where your functional threshold is. Above that functional threshold, curative. Below the functional threshold, palliative. It's not always easy, but you need to identify that right up front. Number three, the tyranny of choice. You are the doctor, you are the only one who is in a position to make these decisions, and when you go to the patient or the patient's family, you don't wanna bring them a vomit of vendables, you wanna give them what you believe is their best option in that situation. So number four, eCPR is not a cure, it is not a fix. eCPR does nothing else other than expand your downtime. So if what was fixable within a 30 minute timeline five years ago is now able to be expanded to one, one and a half hours, maybe two hours, and sometimes even days to allow us time to fix the underlying cause of the patient's arrest. From Montreal, signing out episode 16 EVECMO, win 
you stop the train.